I'm going to begin this morning by reading you a, a somewhat lengthy quote, so bear with me. We didn't have to look very hard to find it. It was everywhere. On a reality TV show, a girl planning her 16th birthday party wants a major road blocked off so a marching band can precede her grand entrance on a red carpet. A book called My Beautiful Mommy explains plastic surgery to young children whose mothers are going under the knife for the trendy mommy makeover. It is now possible to hire fake paparazzi to follow you around, snapping your photograph when you go out at night, and you can even take home a faux celebrity magazine cover featuring the pictures. A popular song declares with no apparent sarcasm, I believe that the world should revolve around me. People buy expensive homes with loans far beyond their ability to pay. Babies wear bibs embroidered with supermodel or chick magnet and suck on bling pacifiers while their parents read modernized nursery rhymes from This Little Piggy Went to Prada. People strive to create a personal brand, also called self-branding, packaging themselves like a product to be sold. Ads for financial services proclaim that retirement helps you return to childhood and pursue your dreams. High school students pummel classmates and then seek attention for their violence by posting YouTube videos of the beatings. Although these seem like a random collection of current trends, all are rooted in a single underlying shift in American psychology, the relentless rise of narcissism. That's an excerpt from a book that was released in 2010 entitled The Narcissism Epidemic, Living in an Age of Entitlement. It's a horrifying, yet I fear accurate, description of our cultural psychology. That word narcissism, if you don't know, gets its meaning from the Greek myth of a man named Narcissus who fell in love with his own image in a pool of water, his own reflection. And, and it sounds absurd, but we act like Narcissus in a thousand ways every single day. We, we are a people that are self-absorbed, self-obsessed, entitled, greedy, and egotistical. But lest you think that the problem is, is just out there, Outside these walls, you need to know that there is a certain degree of inevitability in the way that you have been shaped by the culture that you live in. Uh, your desires, your values, uh, your wants, your worldview have, have been molded according to the world that you live in. I doubt any of you are reading This Little Piggy Went to Prada. I pray that no, none of you is reading This Little Piggy Went to Prada to your children or your grandchildren. Uh, but we are not exempt from the plague of self-absorption, are we? When we wake up in the morning, our first thoughts often sound something like, what's my day? Right? We begin with ourselves. I heard another pastor ask this question. Why, why is it that on our commute to work, our mind, in our mind, we, we make our speed the standard by which everyone else should be traveling, right? The people around us are either going too fast or too slow. It's because we begin with ourselves. 
And as we make our way through the week, we are regularly annoyed with people, with coworkers, with friends, with family, with our children. And why is that? Because they're in the way of what we want to be doing or the way we want to be doing it. We begin with ourselves. We are, of course, also now in an age of self-care, right? We are intensely tuned into our own needs, though we are oblivious or worse, apathetic to the needs and wants of those around us because we, we begin with ourselves. And subtly yet surely, we think of ourselves like we are at the center of the universe and everyone else just revolves around us. That's you and and that's me. And how is that? Because whether we like to admit it or not, we have been shaped by the culture that we live in, the culture of entitlement. But, But of course, there's nothing new under the sun, right? And that culture of entitlement is not new either. In fact, it goes all the way back to the garden. It goes back to a serpent. It goes back to a man and and a wife who through one act of rebellion chose self-rule over God's rule. You know, that heightened sense of materialism and greed that, that tends to sort of rear its ugly head during the Christmas season, that's just a symptom. It's, it's really just a projection, an intensified projection of, of the entitlement that resides within our hearts because of sin. And so we are left asking, what can be done? Look, that's, that's my little introduction. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do, do, you, do you feel throughout your week those little hints of of selfishness and entitlement rising up in you, where everything around you begins to revolve around you. You grow angry and frustrated when things don't go your way. Why is that? It's because deep embedded in our heart, there is this sense that we still believe that we are at the center. What can be done? Well, we we are now in, in the fifth week of our series called The Songs of the Messiah, And this week we are going to zero in on the coming of Jesus Christ as a shepherd. As we consider from this passage, Jesus coming into the world as a shepherd comes to his sheep, I really want you to see two things happening. The first thing I want you to see happening is the unapologetic execution of that culture of entitlement. I'm trying to reach for the strongest language I can find. An unapologetic execution of that culture of entitlement but then also the proposition of a better way. A better way. A a, a way of worship. A way of gratitude. A way of contentment. So our our psalm this morning, which I will get to, uh, our psalm this morning is the final psalm in a collection of six psalms that were regarded by ancient Hebrew scholars as a, a series of messianic psalms. Psalm 95 to 100. And these Psalms all give us a foretaste of what the Messiah will be like. So in Psalm 95, we learn that the Messiah is God, our King, our Maker. In Psalm 96, we find that the Messiah comes as our final judge. In Psalm 97, we saw a few weeks ago 
that the Messiah is the righteous king who comes to reign. In Psalm 98, we learn that he is the final and fullest revelation of God's salvation. In Psalm 99, we learn that he is holy, holy, holy. And in Psalm 100, our psalm for this morning, we learn that he is our shepherd and we are his people. So if you have your Bible open there to Psalm 100, let me read this passage for us. Psalm 100. Old 100, as some call it. Psalm 100. A psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let me pray for us briefly again. Lord, this is your word. And we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word, that you would remove obstacles to our seeing you and seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would embed in us by your grace a deeper sense of gratitude because of your greatness and your love to us, a deeper sense of thanksgiving and praise for you are worthy. Lord, do this work that you would receive glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this psalm begins with a descriptive title of sorts, right? This is a psalm for giving thanks. Uh, some translations, I don't know if you, if you have a different translation, uh, render it a psalm of praise. And indeed, giving thanks and, and praise are main themes that run throughout uh, this psalm. In verse 1 and 2, the psalmist writes, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. And then in verse 4 we read, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. You see, the, the psalmist is after hearts that are brimming over with thanksgiving and praise to God, for, for he knows the Lord is worthy by everyone in the earth to receive praise and thanksgiving. And, and I think before we move on, it would just be wise to stop there. It would just be wise for us to stop and ask this question. Is yours a life that is characterized by gratitude and praise towards God? As you look on your past week, the past month, as you look back on the year 2020, has your life been one that is characterized by gratitude and praise to God? You know, one of the evidences that you have imbibed this culture of entitlement is that there is little thanksgiving and praise in your life. Few times where you stop just to consider the many blessings of God and to really give him thanks and praise, knowing that they have all come from his gracious and benevolent hand. Why is this so often the case? Why are we often so slow to give praise and thanks? Because 
though you probably know better than to verbalize this, you see the good things in your life as your due. Maybe you wouldn't say that, but the way you live shows that the, things that the good things that you experience from God's hand, you receive them as your due, as if you, that you were entitled to them. Right? Gratitude and entitlement are antithetical to one another. There's no reason for thanksgiving and praise when you're just getting what you think you deserve. If in your heart you believe you deserve it, then when God gives it, good, right? Even Stephen. No offense, Steve. But the psalmist here starts from a a very different spot. The, The psalmist here begins from the recognition that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17. He asks with Paul, what do you have that you did not receive? 1 Corinthians 4.7. Underneath the psalmist's praise is the recognition of grace, of undeserved blessing. And since everything good and beautiful that we experience in this life comes from the gracious and kind hand of God, he is worthy to receive all our joyful praise and thanksgiving. And yet our lives so often lack this real posture of gratitude and praise, but instead we abound in in self-centered entitlement. But praise God for his word and for his spirit that convicts us and corrects us. Right, The psalmist this morning is able to help us take our eyes off of ourselves, right? Off of our reflection in the pool of water like Narcissus and put them on him so that we might be filled with praise instead of pride and gratitude instead of greed. He grounds his thanksgiving and praise in three beautiful truths about the shepherd as I see it. And so my hope is that as we work our way through these three truths, that your heart would begin to overflow along with the psalmist in thanksgiving and praise. So notice first the psalmist's call in verse 3 to know that the Lord is God. Look again there with me at verse 1. It says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. Against the the, the backdrop of the shepherd Messiah's arrival is, is the reality that he is the true and living God. The the psalm begins with a string of imperatives or a string of commands, right? Make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord. Come into his presence. But they all seem to be built upon and and flow from this foundation. Know that the Lord, he is God. The covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, he alone is God. And here the psalmist reiterates in seven words what has already been been said in both uh, Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. Listen to these words from uh, Psalm 95 and Psalm 96. It says, For the Lord is a great God, a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands form the dry land. 
Then Psalm 96, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. The Lord, he is God. This is the very beginning of a heart overflowing with praise instead of being obsessed with ourselves. It is a heart that recognizes this most simple and self-evident truth. Are you ready? The Lord is God and you are not. The Lord is God and you are not. Though so many things in our lives compete for the position of that which is ultimate and most important, and though we are daily tempted to take up that place of self-appointed rule, this profound and liberating truth remains. The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And brothers and sisters, that is is good good news He alone is the one who is incomparably great, who holds in his hands both the depths of the earth and the heights of the mountains. He alone is perfectly arrayed in splendor and majesty, strength and beauty. And because of that, we should all stand before his presence with joyful singing and praise and adoration and thanksgiving and worship. Do do you see how this absolutely destroys that narcissism and self-absorption that so characterizes our lives. It is fundamentally to to begin thinking of ourselves as God. It is to, to remove God from his rightful place of Lord and take up that position ourselves. Now, I, I know I'm not saying anything you don't already know, but sometimes we just need the straightforward reminder that, that you are not at the center of the universe. But that's not because there isn't someone that is at the center of the universe. You see what I'm saying? Right? You are not the center of the universe. But that's not because there isn't someone who is at the center of the universe. God is at the center. He is the source of all life. He is the great. Listen to these words. He is the great end to which all history is striving. He is the great purpose for which all things were made. A brother or sister, is the great end to which you are striving God's glory or your own glory? One of those paths leads to utter disappointment and ruin, while the other leads to unbounded joy and delight. Not in yourself, but in the one who is supremely delightful. And I've said these psalms are are messianic and that they point to the coming of Jesus. And if that's the case, we would expect that the New Testament authors would speak of Jesus in this exalted way. And that's, of course, exactly what we find. And Paul writes to the Colossians, listen, these words are now speaking of Jesus. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, or rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. In him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, that in everything, that in everything, he might be preeminent. That, that word preeminent means first, or supreme, surpassing all others. And that phrase, that he might be preeminent, also carries the connotation that his supremacy is the great end, the great goal of everything, the final purpose to which all things are striving. Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans, Romans eleven thirty six: for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So, so where then does that locate us? Right? If God is at the center, who are we then? Where do we situate ourselves? Look again, Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his creatures. Kids, I don't mean like we are his creatures, like, ah, we're creatures. I mean we are created by him. We are the work of his hands, the product of his divine creativity. And because he made us, he owns us. And because he owns us, he has the right to rule us. And you see, that in that paradigm, there is no room for entitlement. There's no room for self-absorption when you realize that he is the creator and you are the created such that you exist for him. But the story of Christmas, the story of Jesus Christ coming into the world, isn't merely, listen to me, it isn't merely that you aren't at the center of the universe. It is the story that you are so low, so insignificant, so inconsequential in the grand scheme of things, and yet he cares for you. Yet he cares for you. He, he owns you and rules you, but not as a demagogue, not as a despot, not as a tyrant, but as a shepherd. As a shepherd. As a shepherd owns and rules and cares for his sheep, so, so the Lord cares for you. That's the second truth I want you to see. The Lord, he is God. And we are his sheep. Look again with me at verse 3. We read, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his people. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Now over and over again, the scriptures to pick up this image of a shepherd and his sheep to describe how God relates to his people. And now as we come to the climax of these six messianic psalms, the psalmist wants us to see him as our shepherd and to see ourselves as his sheep. And so we might ask, what is the coming of the Christ into the world like? It's like the coming of a shepherd to his sheep. Jesus, of course, embraces this imagery, right? You remember the parable that he tells of the, the, the lost sheep where he leaves the 99 to, to go after the one? And of course, Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd in John 10. 
But before we go there, I, I want you to feel the, the anticipation. I want you to feel the need for this very one, the Lord God, to be our shepherd. I want you to feel the need as a sheep to know this one who is the shepherd. Now, I, I've said this before in a previous sermon. Maybe you'll remember it. It's worth repeating. C- consider the fact that when God wanted to compare us to an animal, he, he didn't compare us to a clever fox or a powerful gorilla or to a swift cheetah or even to a beautiful butterfly. Instead, he compares us to arguably, and this, is, this goes throughout the scriptures, by the way. It's not just like one instance. He compares us to arguably the, the most helpless, defenseless, and dependent animal on the planet, a sheep. Sheep cannot survive for very long on their own. They're ill-equipped to find grazing pastures on their own. They are helpless to defend themselves against predators. For all these things, sheep look to their shepherd. In other words, the most vulnerable position for a sheep to be in is to not have a shepherd. Or we could put it this way. The worst thing a sheep can do is to begin thinking of itself as its own shepherd. Sheep that are left to rule themselves without a shepherd will wander away from the flock, from the fold. They will get lost. They will starve. They will be eaten. That's us. That's you and that's me. Utterly dependent. Throughout the Old Testament, God refers to Israel as his sheep. And yet so often they wander and go astray. And so for a time, he, he allowed them to experience what it's like to have have bad shepherds. We, we read about that earlier in, in Jeremiah 23, right? Those, those poor, those terrible shepherds uh, that, that did, did not uh, rule and care for God's flock, but they were selfish and they, they abused the sheep. Or we read in Ezekiel 34, something very simpler, similar. We read that these bad shepherds, which were the, the uh, leaders of Israel, they slaughtered the sheep to feed themselves, they, they used the wool from their backs to clothe themselves, but all the while the sheep starved. The weak sheep were abandoned, the sick, the sick sheep were left to die, the injured sheep were left behind for scavengers, and the lost sheep were deserted. The sheep who remained in the flock were harshly beaten, and as a result, the, the, the sheep were scattered, left alone, vulnerable, helpless, and hopeless. I wonder if you felt those things before. I'm sure you have. Alone, vulnerable, helpless, hopeless. You see that the world's to that the world's solution uh, to that problem is self. The world's solution to that problem is self. Self-absorption, self-reliance, entitlement, narcissism. Right? The world would say, "Be your own shepherd." Be the captain of your own ship. You command your destiny. Pull yourself up and show the world what you're made of. Do you feel alone? You don't need anybody anyway. Do you feel vulnerable? Acquire as much power over others as you can. Do you feel helpless? Acquire as many resources for yourself as you can. Do you feel hopeless? Put your hope in things that you can accomplish. 
But at the end of all that is still a sheep without a shepherd. Alone in the world chasing after a sense of security, safety, and satisfaction. What a comfort it should be then to hear this promise. This is from Ezekiel 34, verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself, listen, this is the Lord speaking. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured. And I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. What a comfort it should be to us then when the Lord comes and says, I myself will be their shepherd. The Lord, he is God, and we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. It is this very one. The the Lord God who pledges himself to us as our shepherd. Brothers and sisters, what what does it mean to have the Lord as our shepherd? We could just stop and recite Psalm 23 together. But let me try and summarize. It, It means that we can be content in all circumstances, knowing that the Lord will always provide our needs. It means that we are secure in all circumstances because he promises to be with us, never to leave nor forsake us, to walk with us even through the valley of the shadow of death. And it means that we can have hope in all circumstances because he is unfailingly leading us. As a shepherd leads his sheep, he is unfailingly leading us to our final destination, to dwell in his house forever. Not only does he know all our needs, but his heart is moved with compassion and love for us such that he meets all of our needs. And that this is the case is unquestionably true because in his goodness, he has met our greatest need. This is the the third and final thing I want you to see. The Lord is good. The Lord, he is God. We are are his sheep, and the Lord is good. Look with me at Psalm 100, verse 4. It says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Notice what's motivating the thanksgiving and the praise there. The psalmist says, give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. You know what stuck out to me there? The thing that stuck out to me in that passage is is the goodness and steadfast love and the faithfulness to all generations. To all generations, right? The Lord was not just a shepherd to Abraham. He wasn't just a shepherd to to Isaac, to Jacob, or to Moses, or to the Hebrews as he led them out of of Egypt and through the, the wilderness, or to David, Uh, or to Israel and to Judah. In fact, all those instances were were pointers to a day when God would fulfill the promise that we just read in Ezekiel 34. When he would come into the world as the shepherd of his people. You, You know, one of the curious things about the promise there in Ezekiel 34 is the name of the shepherd. Did you notice that? He says, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Ezekiel, of course, if, if, you, if you know some Old Testament history, Ezekiel, of course, is writing roughly 350 years after the reign of King David. So who is he talking about? He's talking about David's greater son. He's talking about Jesus Christ, who is to be born in the city of David. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to come into the world and shepherd his people. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. I myself will be their shepherd. He comes into the world to meet the greatest need of his sheep, the need to be rescued from their sin. You have to know, right, that the story of Jesus' sheep is the ultimate. It is the the, the apex. It is the prime story of self-entitlement and narcissism, right? Instead of joyfully submitting to the kind and gracious care of the good shepherd, they left, trusting in themselves, looking to make a name for themselves, but they were deceived. They were deceived and they fell into ruin. They were lost and helpless, vulnerable to all kinds of dangers and left to die. But, but they were not victims of their situation. Right? They had brought it on themselves. But just as the shepherd who leaves the 99 to look for the one, so Jesus, the incarnate Lord and good shepherd, left his throne and, and stepped down out of glory to pursue the lost and bring them back to himself. But the price of their rescue was his life. The price of their rescue was his life, and it was a price that he willingly paid because he is the good shepherd. The psalmist calls us to give thanks to him and to bless his name. Why? For he is good. And where is it, brothers and sisters? Where is it that we see that goodness most visibly, most clearly? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. It's at the cross. It's at the cross where the Lord's goodness is put on full display as the Father sends his Son into the world to bear the punishment for our sin, for our entitlement, for our self-absorption, for our narcissism. It's there at the cross where the beauty of God's goodness, steadfast love and faithfulness outshines all other beauties. It's there at the cross where we are set free from our bondage to self and liberated to live a life of gratitude and praise and worship. And it's there at the cross where we are assured that the Lord will never leave nor forsake us and will always supply all our needs. And finally, it's there at the cross where we can be certain that we are forever safe and secure in the strong and kind arms of our good shepherd. Do do you know what happens to Narcissus in the Greek myth? There's two things that happen, actually, depending on what story what version you read. In one version, uh, he falls so deeply in love with his own image uh, that he stays at the pool of water and wastes away unto death, staring at himself until he dies. In the other version, he's so desperate for a companion, but no one is as beautiful as he is. And when he realizes that he looks in the pool of water to see the only one that he deems handsome enough and beautiful enough to be his match when he realizes that he can't have himself, he kills himself. One way or another, the end of narcissism and self-absorption is death. But the good shepherd doesn't lead his sheep to the poisoned water pools of self-absorption. No, the good shepherd leads his sheep to the still waters of his goodness to the still waters that restore their souls and give life as they drink deeply of his steadfast love and faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, when you have drunk deeply from those waters, when you have known by faith and by faith alone the steadfast love of the Lord to you, your heart will brim over with gratitude and praise to the one who is worthy of all our worship. And and you will be able to sing from the heart These words that we're about to sing. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken, for by my side the Savior, he will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need his power is displayed. To this I hold, to this I hold, my shepherd will defend me. Through the deepest valley he will lead. Oh, the night has been won, and I shall overcome, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Brothers and sisters, the Lord, he is God. We are his sheep. He is good. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the comfort and the joy that it brings. We thank you that you are a God who 
makes yourself known. And that in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have come to know you as our shepherd who nourishes us and cares for us, who knows our needs better than we know them ourselves. Lord, we, would, we pray that you would indeed nourish us by this word. And now as we come to the table, we pray that you would nourish us as we remember Christ in his life and death and resurrection. Strengthen these brothers and sisters. Encourage them. Cause them to persevere. Cause, the, cause them to, to hold fast to you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.